Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. And I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And today is this second Sunday of this Advent season, and we're continuing in a a brief Advent series seeking to spark our anticipation of the coming of God's salvation. And we're seeking to do that by reviewing key highlights of God's promise of redemption. Last week, we started at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And we saw that right on the heels of mankind's fall into sin, shame, guilt, and death, God graciously provided a covering and promised hope through the woman's offspring. Since that time, God has continued to preserve a people to carry on His promise. When God's justice demanded the punishment of the whole world, He preserved Noah on an ark. When mankind conspired to build their way up into the heights of heaven at Babel, God scattered them, but then called Abraham and renewed the promise through his offspring. When Abraham's descendants were enslaved in Egypt, God rescued them and brought them into the promised land. When Israel rejected the Lord as king, God graciously raised up David, a man after his own heart. And that brings us here to 2 Samuel 7, where God reiterates His promise to His people and also adds some new details, and we want to read them together. So follow with me again. I want to read the whole chapter of 2 Samuel 7. This is God's Word. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling." In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, 
with the stripes of the Son of Man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise. And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Father, how I thank you for this word that you have given us. Would you use it in our hearts to magnify Christ before us today? We pray it for his sake. Amen. Many of you, I am sure, have heard the name of Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale felt called by God to be a nurse from a young age. And despite many obstacles... She pursued her calling and got the most significant and the most challenging opportunity she could imagine. When the desperate British government asked her to lead a team of nurses to Crimea, where more soldiers were dying in the hospital than were dying from Britain's war with Russia. For 18 months, Nightingale worked revolutionizing medical sanitation, cutting the death rate in that hospital by more than two-thirds and earning the appreciation of all the men who called her the angel of Crimea. Now thinking that God had blessed her and fulfilled this calling, she went home to live in her childhood home. But upon her return, she was surprised by an unexpected outpouring of blessing. All of Great Britain hailed her as a hero. The queen summoned her to her presence and gave her an engraved brooch which became known as the Nightingale Jewel. And on top of that, the government raised the equivalent of several million dollars in her honor and gave it to her, which she decided to use to start a nurse training school for women across Britain. 
just when she felt that God had fulfilled his calling to her, an overflowing of unexpected blessing came upon her. It's a similar pattern, I think, in the life of David. But even hero status, a jewel hand-delivered by the queen, and several million dollars pale in comparison to what God promises David here in 2 Samuel 7. Just consider the situation. I, I realize I'm filling out my imagination a bit, but when the chapter opens in verse 1, I imagine David and Nathan sitting on the veranda of David's new palace together, maybe, maybe uh, sharing a, a glass of wine and reflecting on all that God had done for David. God has preserved David through Saul's persecution. God has called David to be king. God has defeated David's enemies and Israel's enemies on all sides. And now, in gratitude, as they review all of these blessings, David says to Nathan, you know, I want to honor the Lord. I want to build a house for his name. And Nathan thinks this is a great idea. Until God comes and says no. But just when God says no, he also adds a surprise Because while it seems that God has done so much for David and for Israel, and he has, he here raises expectations even further, promising to establish one of David's offspring as an everlasting king to secure his people forever. In this chapter, we find a deeper understanding of God's promise and a deeper understanding of our promise-keeping God. And I want to look at both of them in our time this morning. So let's begin by looking at the promise that God makes to David. We find the details in verses 9 through 16. Starting in verse 9, God first promises David, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. If we were to turn back to Genesis 12, 2, we would find God making the same promise to Abraham, that he would make his name great on the earth. I believe these are the only two places, aside from Jesus himself, where God promises to make the name of a person great, meaning that taken together, we find God determining to make the names of Abraham and David uniquely great in the unfolding plan of his redemption. And as we watch the prophecies of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the new, we see God fulfilling this promise. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, God identifies the coming Redeemer of Israel with David as the righteous branch that he will raise up for David. In Ezekiel 34, 23, the identification is even closer. As God says of the Messiah, I will raise up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. In Luke 1, verse 32, the angel visits Mary And tells her that she will have a son named Jesus. And she says, he will have the throne of his father, David. And then maybe even most strikingly, as we come to the close of the Bible in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus himself speaks and identifies himself as the root and the descendant of David. I want you to step back for a second and just see what God's saying. Can you imagine if God came to you and said, you know, I am going to, from now on, identify my own son and my own kingdom with your name. He's saying the very son of God and the very throne of God's kingdom, even in glory for all eternity, David, will bear your name. I will make your name great 
on the earth. This is an astounding promise. But it keeps getting better. In verses 10 and 11, God adds, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they will be disturbed no more. Just review in your mind for a minute all that Israel has endured over the previous several hundred years of wandering in the wilderness and of being oppressed and defeated by enemies in the time of the judges. What a significant promise that they would be disturbed no more but planted in the land. And if we think about this promise, it goes back to Abraham. It was Abraham's hope when he left Ur to follow God, a land that would be promised to his offspring. It was God's promise to Isaac and to Jacob. It had been Israel's longing as God brought them out of Egypt into the promised land that God would establish them and they might dwell at rest in this land flowing with milk and honey. Over the course of the years, sin has continued to interrupt this promise. And yet, despite their sin, the promise is not canceled. And God tells David that he has decided to use him and his descendants as the means to bring about the security and the rest that his people had been longing for for generations. So God comes to David and says, David, yes, I have done many things for you, but it's going to be much greater. You and your offspring are going to be the means of the security and rest of your people that they've been longing for. But God isn't done. In verses 11 through 12, he adds a further detail. God is going to build David a house. A house is in a dynasty or a line of kings that would come from him. And I want you to notice here in verse 12 that we have that same word that has been the source of the hope of God's people ever since Genesis 3. That word offspring. Israel's hope continues to come back to an offspring. It was there with Adam and Eve in the face of sin and death. Hope would come through the seed or the offspring of the woman. It was there with Abraham. Through his offspring would come nations and kings and blessing for all the peoples of the earth. And now to David comes the promise of an offspring who will rule in God's kingdom. And again, Scripture, as we saw last week, continues to make this this twofold hope of a, a plural offspring, but also a singular offspring who will be the focus of this promise. We saw in Genesis 3.15 last week that there would be enmity all throughout history between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, but hope was going to come through one particular offspring who would win the decisive battle against Satan. In Genesis 12, 13, and 17, God declared that Abraham's offspring would be as many as the stars in the sky. But Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 16, that God's promise to Abraham primarily referred to one offspring, and that offspring was Christ. Here, God promises to David a dynasty through his children, but if we keep reading in the Old Testament, we find Isaiah and Jeremiah And Ezekiel, looking ahead to one particular offspring of David, who would rule as prince over his people. But here we have this significant blessing, this reiteration that an offspring is coming. And David, it will be an offspring of yours who will continue the line on the throne of God's kingdom. But then if that wasn't enough, God adds, finally, not only will he establish David's house, but David's house and David's kingdom will be made sure forever. This is not a temporary promise. 
In one sense, of course, this promise of an offspring to David clearly refers to Solomon. God says that David is going to have a son who will build a house for God's name. And that, of course, is Solomon who builds the temple for the Lord. God says that David's son is going to commit iniquity and David will, or God will discipline him. And that, of course, is what happened with Solomon. So there's clear reference to Solomon here, but it's equally clear that Solomon doesn't fulfill all of this promise. Because verses 16 and 17 extend beyond Solomon. God promises everlasting security, an eternal reign in God's presence, which Solomon does not fulfill. And this, this idea of an everlasting throne and kingdom and rest in the land, again, brings to mind God's promise to Abraham. God's promise of an everlasting covenant with his descendants as a means of blessing to all nations. And I think we have a clue in verse 19 here that David makes the same connection, that this promise is an extension of the promise to Abraham. If you look down at verse 19, you see what David says. He says, This is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And then he says, And this is instruction for mankind. Instruction or law. A promise not just for David, not just for Israel, but for mankind. And I think... What David's realizing is that God's promise to Abraham of blessing for all the nations, God is extending that and tying this covenant blessing now, this hope for Israel, but also for all the nations to David's kingdom, which God promises to establish and secure in his presence forever. Imagine what must have been going through David's head when he received this promise from the Lord. You know, sometimes children's Bibles do the best job of helping us understand what God's Word is saying. And one of my favorite children's Bibles, the Big Picture Storybook Bible, beautifully sums up this chapter. Here, here's how it describes 2 Samuel 7. It says, David was amazed at how good God was. And David wanted to do something for God. So David decided to build God a house. But one night, God sent word to David. He didn't want David to build him a house. God said David's son would build the house instead. Then God surprised David and promised to build David a house. Not a real house of bricks or wood, but a kingdom, God's kingdom. And then God surprised David again. God promised that someone from David's family would live forever as God's king. And if that wasn't enough, God surprised David again. This forever ruler would be the promised one who would bring God's blessings to all the people's of the earth. God's surprising promise made David very happy. He thanked God, and then this promise was written down in God's holy book. And what a great summary of the magnitude of God's promise, which reiterated this hope of redemption and raised the expectations for everlasting security and rest in the presence of God that would come through someone from David's house who would reign as God's king forever. Well, that's God's promise to David, but I want to turn our attention now to look at the character of our promise-making God, because we learn quite a bit about God and who he is from the promise he makes in this chapter. And particularly, I want to draw your attention to three things that we learn about God. The first comes in verses 6 and 7. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
God comes to Nathan and is explaining to Nathan why he does not want David to build him a house. And he begins by pointing out that through all the years of the judges and all the years of the wandering, he's never said that he wanted a house to dwell in. But then God goes on to explain the reason God says is that Israel has not been at rest. And he, the Lord, has been moving about in a tent in order to dwell with his people, Israel. He has been moving about with his people. And the reason he has not had a house to dwell in is that his people are not at rest. You see it there in verse 7. He's moving about with all the people of Israel. In other words, God's desire is to dwell and be with his people, even through the wilderness, even through their disobedience, even hopping about as they're defeated during the time of the judges. And I think if we sit back and reflect on the character of our God, as one commentator asks, will we really be surprised if we understand God's statement here when we come to John 1, 14? And God declares that the word, his son, is going to come and dwell with us, tent with us, as the word could literally be translated. And why does God come to dwell with his people, to wander about and be with his people? Well, John 1.14 says that the word came to dwell among his people so that we might behold his glory and that we might receive grace upon grace. See, our God is a God who comes down to dwell with his people that we might know him and see his glory and that we might receive grace upon grace from him until he secures us and gives us rest. That's the character of our God who makes this promise. The second thing we see about God's character is the overwhelming evidence of his grace Do you notice that all throughout this passage, there's not one mention of anything that David does for God? There's one thing David wanted to do for God, but God waved it off. The whole chapter is about what God has done for David. God took David from the fields. God made David prince over his people. God gave him rest from his enemies. God is going to make his name great. God is going to raise up his descendants after him. God is going to plant his people in security. God is going to make this an everlasting kingdom. And do you notice that this doesn't depend upon David's descendants being good enough? In fact, God declares your descendants are going to commit iniquity and I'm going to discipline them with the stripes of men. Now, none of this implies for a second that it doesn't matter whether we obey God or not. Verse 14 makes it clear the warning of discipline on disobedience. But what it declares with crystal clarity is that everything that God promises is given as a gift by His grace alone. It is given as undeserved favor to His people. It is given because it is His desire and His plan to carry out this promises for His glory and the good of His people. And that's true to His character. Because our God is a God of abounding grace. So God is a God who desires to dwell with his people that they may see his glory and receive grace upon grace. Our God is a God of overwhelming and overabounding grace. And then thirdly, God is a God of sovereign faithfulness. 
When we use the word sovereign, we mean that God is in perfect control of all that happens. And when we talk about God being faithful, we mean that he uses his sovereignty to keep every word that he promises, and not a word that he declares will fail. Do you notice in verse 21 how David summarizes the root or the source of his confidence in God's promise? He says, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. In other words, God's promise is rooted in his will. And if it is the desire of a sovereign God to do something, it will happen. And I love the way that David summarizes his confidence in verse 29. You come to the end of David's prayer. And what does David pray? He says, For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. If I would uh, summarize that in the modern Chris Walker English version, you could summarize David's words this way. You said it, God, so it is going to happen. Because our God is a sovereign God and he is faithful and it gives us confidence in his word. So who is this promise-making God? He's one who comes down to dwell with his people, going with them until he gives them rest. He is one who acts with abounding grace, giving blessing from the intention of his heart. And he is one who is sovereign and faithful, whose word and whose promises always come to pass. That is the God that we meet in this chapter. And the question is, having received such a promise from such a God, how should we respond this morning? And I'd like to suggest that we should respond the same way David responds. Look at David's response over verses 18 to 29. The first thing David does in verses 18 to 21 is respond with humble gratitude. He says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And what more can David say to you? David is overwhelmed at what God has determined to do for him. And we too should be overwhelmed at what God has determined to do for us. One commentator shares the story of Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn was the longtime Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives in the 1940s and 50s. And during his time as Speaker, it was one of the, the reporters from Capitol Hill unexpectedly had a teenage daughter who died. And the morning after her death, while the family was grieving, the reporter heard a knock at the door. He went and opened it and was stunned to find the Speaker of the House of Representatives standing at his front door. And trying to recover from his surprise, Rayburn said, well, I just came to see what I could do to help. And the reporter says, well, I, th- I think most things are taken care of, plans are coming along. And Rayburn says, well, have you had your coffee this morning? And the reporter confessed that he had not. And so Rayburn said, well, I'll come in and make coffee for your family. So he went into the kitchen and began making coffee For the family, when the reporter suddenly remembered that on that day of the week, the Speaker of the House had a standing meeting with the President. And so he said, Mr. Speaker, he said, aren't you supposed to be at breakfast with the President right now? And Rayburn said, yes, I I am, but I called the President and told him I couldn't come this morning. I had a friend who needed help. And here this reporter, this everyday reporter on Capitol Hill, never forgot the day that the Speaker of the House of Representatives stood up the President of the United States to come and make his coffee the day after his daughter died. 
But such condescension, such thoughtful blessing is nothing compared to what the God of the universe has come to do with us. Just consider the Lord God kept his promise to Israel, his promise to Israel over millennia despite repeated sin and brought about their salvation through the sacrifice of his own son. And then through that salvation that he brought to Israel, he opened the floodgates so that any sinner who deserved his wrath from any tribe, people, tongue, or nation who would come to him in repentance and faith might find everlasting life. For by grace we can be saved, not of works. It is a gift of God for any who will receive him. And if that doesn't overwhelm us with gratitude, leading us to ask, who am I, Lord God, to receive all of this from you? I don't know what will. So we respond in humble gratitude. The second thing David did, and you see it in verses 22 to 24, he responds with praise. He declares, therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there is no God besides you. And having declared God great, David goes on to rehearse the mighty things God has done, making a name for himself by calling Israel to be his people and redeeming Israel from Egypt and planting them in the land. In other words, David steps back and praises God for who he is and what he has done through the nation Israel. And this is the pattern, I think, to praise God for who he is and for what he has done. Now, this is something we all know. My guess is that an application to praise God isn't very new or unique for us. But it is among David's first responses when he hears God's promise. And will you notice that David's praise is not offered in a sense of duty or obligation or routine? He was well-versed in God's promises, but when, but when he stood face to face again with the magnitude of what God had declared to him and what he would do, praise is the genuine response that spilled out from his soul. And that's what I want to encourage us this morning in this Advent season. As we see again what God has done for us through Christ Jesus, would genuine praise for God for who God is and what he has done, be the natural overflow of our hearts as we sing out in praise to him. That's the second response. The third one, then finally, in verses 25 to 29, notice that David prays that God would accomplish exactly what he had just promised. David prays that God would confirm forever the word he had spoken and that it would please God to bless his house and that his house would continue forever. Now, this might seem a bit odd to us. Why does David spend his time praying that God would do exactly what God just said he would do? But I think if we would review the testimony of Scripture, this is exactly what we would find again and again from God's kings and his prophets and his apostles, that they pray for the things God has promised to do. Of course, we're invited to bring every request before the Lord. But one thing we ought to do in our time of prayer is to pray for God to fulfill his promises. We should be praying that God would fulfill his promises to his people, that he would save many from every tribe and tongue and nation, that he would raise up laborers for the harvest, that his spirit would convict us of sin and lead us into truth, that God would bring about and fill us with the fruits of righteousness by the power of his spirit. 
that God would accomplish every plan he has told us in Scripture, that he would bring it about and that Jesus Christ would come again in glory. For in praying God's promises, we are both reminded of what God has guaranteed he will do, but we also have the privilege of participating and bringing about his will through the prayers of his people, which are powerful in their working. In my own devotions this week, I was reading Daniel, and I was struck at how Daniel reads that the 70 years are about to come due when God had said he would bring his people back. And so Daniel prays that God would bring his people back to the land. And and then the angel Gabriel says, and says, from the moment of your prayer, a word went out. We are to be praying for the things that God has promised. And so what is our response to the Lord? Humble gratitude, a natural overflow of praise, an earnest prayer that God would accomplish all of his promises. We come to an end this morning. And my prayer this morning is that this review of what God has promised will pique our anticipation for Christ. For that day when he shall return, we will rest secure in his presence under the everlasting throne of David, just as he's promised in 2 Samuel 7. Let's pray. Father, how we ask that you would fulfill your promises. How we ask that you would bring about the day when this everlasting king would sit on David's throne and bring security for all of your people forever. And how I ask that as we think about those promises, we would be overwhelmed with gratitude, that our hearts would sing forth in praise, and that we would continue to pray earnestly for this to come and pass for the glory of your name. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.